Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about medical marijuana for pediatric patients with Dr. Prasanna Ananth. Dr. Ananth is an assistant professor of pediatric hematology and oncology at Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. I thought the goal was to not have kids using marijuana. Like, what's up with this? <laughs> well, over the last five to six years, we've seen this huge surge in legalization of both medical marijuana and now recreational marijuana. And many states that have legalized medical marijuana, meaning marijuana used for uh, treatment of symptoms or illnesses, have also increased access to children with serious or life-threatening illness. You know, I'm a pediatrician who takes care of children with serious life-threatening illness, and so I personally, in my clinical practice and through my research, have encountered a great deal of interest among children with cancer and their families in using medical marijuana, both to treat some of the symptoms of, of cancer and its, and its therapy, and potentially also to treat cancer. There's a lot of sort of um, theorization around what it could potentially do for cancer treatment. I see. But it's my understanding, and of course I'm not totally up to date, but it's my understanding that there isn't really any compelling evidence that marijuana per se is an effective cancer therapy. Am I wrong there? There's really not a lot of evidence, and, and definitely not within pediatrics, that medical marijuana can help with any of the symptoms that patients are asking for it for, um, or for cancer treatment. I think there we're... Um, we're struggling because the laws are far outpacing the science, and there is really no evidence for any of this. Um, there's a little bit of evidence in the adult literature for uh, basically purified THC, a component of marijuana, to assist with nausea, vomiting, and poor appetite. Mm -hmm. um, but few of those studies really included pediatric age patients. And, you know, patients are also asking for marijuana for anxiety, for pain, and there's really not a lot of evidence for its use under any of those circumstances, at least within the pediatric age group. Hmm. That's really interesting. I, I hadn't really thought about that, that uh, for uh, any sort of mainstream cancer drugs or mainstream drugs uh, to combat the side effects of cancer, be it nausea or kind of some of the things we think about pain. Uh, the FDA has such a rigorous uh, approval process, right, to, to get drugs uh, certified as, as effective and, and reasonably safe. And yet this medical marijuana movement, if you will, uh, was just basically uh, really in response, I think, to, um, um, you know, kind of population pressure, right, to lobbying mm -hmm. uh, from, a, from a group that, uh, that really believed in it despite absence of any data. Is that right? Right. That's absolutely right. And I think 
as providers, what we're saddled with is the fact that there aren't a lot of data, that this isn't a, an FDA-approved medication. So we don't have any guidance around formulations, around dosages, around different strains. I mean, there are hundreds of strains of marijuana. There's different forms you can take it in, either oil or the plant or edibles now, vaporized, smoked. I mean, I could go on and on. You um, seem to know a lot about this, Prasad. I don't know. <laughs> and I, I think as as providers and potential legal recommenders, depending on your state, um, we are struggling with what to say to families and patients who mm -hmm. are asking for it for you know what may be perceived to be legitimate reasons. So in 2012, the state of Massachusetts, where I used to practice, legalized medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. And right around that time, we started to see a huge spike in patients and families asking about medical marijuana. Sometimes patients, at least in my experience, were just asking to see what my opinion was. Mm -hmm. But many times, patients who had unrelieved symptoms were asking because the therapies we were offering them weren't helping. Um, some of my adolescent and young adult patients were asking because they'd had experience with recreational marijuana and were right. wondering whether marijuana in the medical setting might have some utility. And I have to say, from my personal experience, it was hard for me to say that it couldn't help. I obviously worried a little bit about patients smoking sure. uh, or vaporizing, especially patients with suppressed immune systems. I didn't necessarily want them to be exposed to infections or to be exposed to the potential of lung cancer from smoking marijuana recreationally right. or medically. Um, but could I say that an edible form or an oil of marijuana taken in, taken in small doses might not help with symptoms? I couldn't say that definitively. Hmm. So around that time, I was discussing this issue with my mentor, Joanne Wolf, who is a the director of palliative care at Boston Children's Hospital, as well as a pediatric oncologist. And she's also my research mentor. And, you know, we've been very interested in exploring the the potential of medical marijuana as a supportive care agent. And so what we embarked on was a national study at three major pediatric oncology centers to explore what providers' perceptions were of medical marijuana. Mm -hmm. Specifically, what were their attitudes about it? How often were they being asked about it or were they recommending medical marijuana? And then what did they know about their state regulations? And this is pediatric oncology. These right? were... This study included pediatric oncology physicians, mm -hmm. nurses, nurse practitioners, and psychosocial clinicians, so okay. psychologists, social workers, et cetera. So a whole range of disciplines. Right. Um, so we surveyed over 300 providers. In, this, in the study itself, uh, we had 288 professionals that we surveyed. And basically what we found was that, you know, sort of Generally speaking, providers were very welcoming or open to recommending medical marijuana for children with cancer for supportive care purposes, so to relieve symptoms. And there was actually a significant proportion of providers who were also open to using it as a cancer-directed therapy. Hmm. We broke down our, our data, our analyses, by whether providers are legally 
eligible to recommend versus not. And what we mean by that is, so we conducted the study in three states, in Seattle, uh, at Seattle Children's Hospital, so Washington State, Lurie Children's Hospital, so Illinois, and then Boston Children's and Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, so Massachusetts. All of these states have legalized medical marijuana, and then Washington State, of course, has legalized recreational marijuana. In all states, physicians are theoretically eligible to recommend. Washington State additionally allows nurse practitioners and physician assistants to recommend also. So we kind of theorized as we were going into the study that your attitudes might differ depending on whether you would be able to recommend medical marijuana versus not. And what mm -hmm. we found was those providers who are legally eligible to recommend medical marijuana were a little more circumspect about recommending it, so or, or a little more cautious about recommending it as a cancer-directed therapy, recommending it in smoked formulations. But in general, providers were actually largely welcoming of recommending it for therapeutic purposes. And I think that was really surprising, mm. particularly given decades of data largely coming out of the National Institute of Drug Abuse, looking at recreational marijuana use in youth and um, and demonstrating a lot of potential harm. Yeah, that's why I started out the interview that way, right? Mm -hmm. You know, I was thinking that this isn't just what we're taught that kids should be doing right. optimally. Right. And you know, as a pediatrician, I am attendant to all of those concerns, you know, right. for habitual use, the potential for, you know, um, habit formation, for um, mental health effects, for effects on a developing brain. I'm fully aware of all of those concerns. The challenge is that when we're taking care of children with serious illness that is potentially life-threatening, the calculus shifts, our, our decision-making changes. Mm -hmm. And these are families who are already using habit-forming medications, things like opioids, pain medications, um, benzodiazepines, uh, things like Ativan, which is also potentially habit-forming. And so, you know, what families will sometimes say is, how much worse could medical marijuana be compared mm. to the chemo, which can be toxic, um, or some of these other supportive care medications that we're taking? Mm. Um, and I have to say, I, I can't argue with that right. decision making, especially if you know a family is facing uh, a child's illness that, that might be life limiting. Like Except that you don't terminal. really have the data you know, for surviving patients, for example, what what the long-term impact may be, right? Right. So in our study, we asked whether providers would be in favor of clinical trials, um, you know, because one of the concerns that providers cited, not surprisingly, was the lack of data. Right. Um, and by and large, providers were very much in favor of clinical trials, rigorous clinical trials to help demonstrate the efficacy of medical marijuana. What we've been struggling with nationally is that you know, marijuana is classified as a Schedule One controlled substance by the Drug Enforcement Agency. And so what that means is it's classified right alongside LSD, heroin, drugs that are not thought to have any medical benefit. And that goes back several decades. Right. Um, and unfortunately, the DEA has declined reclassifying marijuana, even though there is some, you know, emerging medical evidence in the adult population that maybe it has some medical benefit. Uh, they've declined reclassifying it. And as a result, it becomes really difficult to do any sort of research studies on it. Hmm. Historically, there was only a, a handful of institutions that, it could, that could even access marijuana for research purposes. Um, supposedly, the DEA was, as of last year, trying to make marijuana more accessible to be able to conduct 
clinical research, but I'm not sure how that's borne out because I haven't done the research myself. Um, you know, federally, marijuana is illegal. Right. So that's also kind of a conundrum. And in this new... <laughs> right. We're crazy, right? Yeah. And in this new administration, we're also hearing some rumblings about potential prosecution of states, of businesses that provide marijuana, even if it's for medical purposes, of providers that recommend marijuana. Mm. And so I think we're in this legal turmoil that makes it really hard to obtain that rigorous clinical evidence that patients and families are really desiring and providers are desiring to be able to recommend this legitimately. Yeah. So in states um, in which medical marijuana is legal, and and let's just take Connecticut uh, as our local example, uh, where medical marijuana uh, is legal, um, do the laws regulate the prescription of such uh, products uh, based on age? Is there any lower limit uh, beyond which uh, they are not allowed to dispense? So every state is different. Um, and in general, no. So uh, there's no lower la- age limit, uh, generally speaking. What many states have done, it's interesting because if you actually go and dig into the, the legislation, it's often quite vague. Mm-hmm. And it's left up to state departments of public health to delineate who they would allow access to. Um, And in Connecticut, you know, I'm relatively new to Connecticut just in the last less than six months. And so I'm not, you know, I feel like you've been here a lot longer already. Okay, (laughs) Uh, not 100 percent familiar with the laws here. But I do know that we do sometimes recommend it uh, for children who have um, intractable symptoms. So symptoms that haven't been relieved by standard medications, symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and the providers that I know that are recommending it generally have set their own thresholds, but are generally recommending it to patients who have severe terminal illness. I see. Um, so not necessarily to the patient with a cancer that is anticipated to be curable, whose symptoms could be relieved by our standard medications. Got it. Um, but every provider kind of comes up with their own thresholds. Um, and so age is not necessarily, if, if a child has a serious debilitating illness, age is not necessarily a limiting factor. I see. Well, it's a fascinating topic, and uh, we've got a lot to talk about in the second half. But right now, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about medical marijuana for pediatric patients with cancer. With Dr. Prasanna Ananth. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to eliminate cancer as a cause of death. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about smoking cessation. There are many obstacles to face when quitting smoking, as smoking involves the potent drug nicotine, but it's a very important lifestyle change, especially for patients undergoing cancer treatment. Quitting smoking has been shown to positively impact response to treatments, decrease the likelihood that patients will develop second malignancies, and increase rates of survival. Tobacco treatment programs are currently being offered at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers and operate on the principles of the U.S. Public Health Service Clinical Practice Guidelines. All treatment components are evidence-based and therefore all patients are treated with FDA-approved first-line medications for smoking cessation, as well as smoking cessation counseling that stresses appropriate coping skills. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. 
This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I've been joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Prasanna Ananth, and we've been discussing the use of medical marijuana for children with cancer. So, Prasanna, it's it, it's so interesting to me, this whole thing uh, in medical marijuana. And I can tell you that in the last couple of years, I don't remember when I started prescribing, but I had a number of, of my adult patients uh, requesting it, and I... I didn't see uh, a downside as long as they weren't smoking. Um, so I figured I would get myself credentialed to do so um, because I was providing an adjunctive thing that I, to me seemed of little harm to an informed adult patient. Um, and I found out that all I had to do to credential myself was to sign up on the website. There's no training module. There's no nothing. Uh, I can't do anything in licensure and medicine without taking board exams and recertification and continuing medical education. And this was just really filling your DEA number and your you know medical license and you're a prescriber. And the other peculiar thing to me about it is that I can say the maximum amount per month that they should get, which I don't really know how to even gauge. And then the dispensary really determines the rest, what kind of product they're going to use and how much. It's really very different than every other prescribing model in any modality that I can think of that that we do. And it's one in which I, I have almost zero quality control. Mm-hmm. It's got to yeah, be worse I mean, for kids because there's no, even less data, I'm sure. Right. I, you know, there's not a lot of data, period, across the board. And every state is a little different in terms of what they mandate for people who actually are recommending mm-hmm. medical marijuana. It's not, you know, not a prescribed medication, so I don't really call myself a prescriber. But um, <laughs> in, in in Massachusetts, you do a, a four-hour online training. Well, that seems reasonable. Yeah, but you could kind of skip through it fairly quickly. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's not really an expectation that you have a certain baseline knowledge. So in our study, we did ask questions of providers um, in terms of how much they knew about state and federal regulations. And what we found was providers were largely quite unaware of their specific state regulations. I mean, we asked some detailed questions about, you know, what quantity of medical marijuana patients could possess, um, you know, uh, did they have to have a registration card or not? And even in states that have had access to medical marijuana, like Washington State, where you know recreational marijuana has existed for a while, even then, providers were not necessarily aware of their state regulations. And so it does suggest that there's a substantial knowledge gap. And that, you know, as I started to talk more about this, I was finding, I was talking a little bit about sort of what medications marijuana could interact with. Mm. Um, and that was a, a huge unknown for right, a lot Right, and of that providers. could be super important in cancer. Like, exactly. what if it's interfering with the chemotherapy? Right. It, it's also very important and relevant when enrolling patients on early phase clinical trials right. uh, because it could have potential interaction. And, and, you know, the the challenge is that if we don't ask about it, if patients don't disclose that they're using medical marijuana, they may be using it unbeknownst to us, and they may be subject to a lot of toxicities. And so, you know, what I have been in, what I've learned from this research and what I've been encouraging my, my colleagues um, to do is to ask about alternative remedies, to ask about use of medical marijuana, and then you know, documenting in the medical record, um, which I think is controversial, but documenting the medical record, what formulation they're taking. I 
I agree with you that there's a lot of unknowns about, for, you know, formulations, strains, and that dispensaries may have variable practices in terms of, you know, how cleanly they are, um, wow. <laughs> what their practices are. In general, um, Every state is sort of State Department of Public Health has some degree of regulation over dispensaries, but really they're for-profit businesses, um, and so their intent in going to the business is sort of different than than what our theoretical purposes in healthcare. Well, uh-huh. pharmaceutical industry is also for-profit. Let's not forget. True. True. That so, makes a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there isn't sort of any universal oversight right. um, over it's the dispensaries. Peculiar. So, you know, you have no idea when you're suggesting to a patient uh, to take, say, an, an, a marijuana oil, what they're actually getting or what dose that is. Mm. Um, you know, when I... I haven't personally recommended medical marijuana to anyone only because I haven't gone through that additional sort of training or, or and I guess it's not really licensure, but sort of certification or um, to be able to recommend medical marijuana. But many Here of my in Connecticut, have. that doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> <laughs> so go ahead. <laughs> many of my colleagues who have generally have been steering patients and dispensaries away from recommending vaporized or smoked formulations. But beyond that, we know that some edible form. So, you know, marijuana can come in edibles like candy or brownies. um, And we really don't know anything about the strengths of of those formulations. And I would think that's very challenging among kids where candy and brownies, wow, you know, try to stick to just one. And there actually have been reports out of Colorado of children inadvertently ingesting like grandma's medical marijuana edible and have come in with intoxication from marijuana. You know, we haven't seen death from medical marijuana. So I think the perception is that marijuana is pretty safe, Safe. but it can have some toxicity, especially in younger children. And we don't have, uh, apart from sort of cautioning patients that there can be variable strengths, you know, I'm not sure at the dispensary level how they're able to sort of differentiate strengths in some Mm. regards. So anecdotally, among your colleagues who have prescribed medical marijuana for kids with cancer, have you heard any scuttlebutt about, gee, it seems to be helping, or maybe it's helping, or I haven't noticed any difference? Mm -hmm. I think it's hard to say because oftentimes the circumstances in which medical marijuana is recommended are in patients who are really sick. Desperate, sure. Um, And so... Uh, you know, I think my colleagues have seen, and in my own patients, I think they have experienced some reduction in nausea, some improvement in appetite, um, and, you know, maybe some reduction in anxiety and pain. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's why I say it's kind of hard to deny that there may be some benefit to it. Um, you know, it's hard to say also whether it may have some additive benefit. Uh, or synergistic effect, combined effect with some of the other prescribed medications that we give. Um, I haven't seen a lot of harm, and I think my colleagues would say that too. Um, We haven't, you know, in the episodic use that patients have, so occasional use of marijuana to help relieve symptoms, it's not sort of at the level of habitual use. Um, And if they're not smoking it, I haven't seen a lot of harm come to my patients. But I also haven't seen, you know, hundreds of patients using medical marijuana. There's a, there's a lot of stigma that patients and families will talk about. You know, they're they're afraid to disclose that they're using it, or they're afraid to talk about it in the clinic, in part because of the perception that it's a you know an illicit substance, and hmm. that they might be labeled as you know I don't know quote unquote druggies or or you know they they might there might be some sort of connotation right. attached to it. 
Yeah, I haven't found that among adults. <laughs> uh, well, I, maybe I don't know the ones who aren't disclosing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's interesting because uh, you mentioned the uh, medical, better studied, uh, purified THC, which is marketed as uh, dronabinol or marinol is the brand mm-hmm. name, I think. And my experience with that particular formulation uh, which is usually prescribed for nausea, has has been almost uniformly negative uh, that patients uh, who are accustomed to recreational marijuana don't feel that it gives them the, the high benefit or the mood benefit that they expect. And patients who are not used to uh, recreational marijuana just so tend to not like the way they feel and, and it's too uh, sleep-inducing. Um, that's been my anecdotal experience. I don't like to prescribe it. I have found that patients, very anecdotal, few patients, patients who've asked for medical marijuana, often because of anxiety, and I think mostly with some experience with recreational marijuana, is my guess, you know, have uh, are very happy with it. Um, and I, I've seen some major mood uh, improvement in at least one patient who. Uh, you know, was having problems. That's not to say that I would recommend it to anybody because I, I don't know that I should. And I think this was, you know, kind of a particular one-off in somebody who really felt that marijuana helped him in life. Um, but um, it's quite different than my experience with the with the prescribed uh, dronabinol form. I, again, mm-hmm. that's totally anecdotal. Yeah, I mean, we prescribe dronabinol a lot. And what patients will say is that it doesn't, helpfully with the symptoms of nausea or poor appetite, it might help a little bit. Um, But it also has, for many pediatric patients, they will complain of that high or, you know, dizziness or sort of an altered. So they don't like that. They don't like that. Yeah. Um, You know, there actually has been some pediatric research in children with bad seizures. Mm. Um, There has been some research looking at a purified CBD oil. Right. That's the other part of the hemp or something? Right. So, so, yeah, you know, marijuana is made up of more than 200 cannabinoids, these chemical compounds. Um, The two major classes are THC, which gives you that high, and then CBD. Um, there is a purified form of CBD that's commercially available. You can buy it on Amazon. It has a very – it's not totally devoid of THC, but it has less than 0.03% THC. So most most states actually allow access to it, even if they don't have legal access to medical marijuana. Okay. It's not sort of considered the same as cannabis. Um, and so there there were a couple of national studies, multi-center studies that were very rigorously conducted, randomized controlled trials looking at purified CBD oil in children who had terrible seizure disorders and had been on multiple seizure medications. And from reading those studies, what I could glean was that there may be some benefit in terms of reduction in seizure frequency, but there are also some potential risks. Hmm. Um, You know, anecdotally, you know, there are many families whose children suffer from seizure disorders who speak very highly of purified CBD oil and helping to reduce seizure frequency. There's a particular strain of CBD um, called Charlotte's Web, particular strain made in Colorado. And there's a family that went on CNN and talked about how their child regained developmental milestones after having lost them with terrible seizure disorders. And so, and this was a story that that Sanjay Gupta covered. It doesn't take really a lot of compelling. stories like that to really have a lot of impact. Exactly. You know, Sanjay Gupta, as a neurosurgeon, was uh, writes very eloquently about how he had a very negative per- perception of marijuana and then having met this family and sort of seen the benefits over time of medical marijuana for people with serious illness, that his attitudes changed. And so... Um, 
you know, so there may be some role for trialing CBD oil in pediatric patients with cancer. Um, anecdotally, again, what patients will say, though, is that um, they they are they have this perception, and, and maybe it's rooted in some science I'm not aware of, that it's the THC component that may be active against cancer. Oh, wow. And so I think patients and families aren't looking for that purified CBD oil always, um, that many families are asking for that recommendation for medical marijuana specifically because they want some combination of CBD and THC. What has been your uh, experience in your surveys, formal or informal, about or your discussions with patients and their families about how acceptable they would find randomized trials of medical marijuana. Uh, are people willing to be randomized to a placebo? Could you randomize them between uh, medical marijuana and CBD so they'd always be getting something? Well, it seems like a pretty hard sell, and you'd pretty much know if you were on the placebo, I think. Mm-hmm. You know what? I haven't asked patients and families that. I think in general, everyone is in. Everyone that I've talked to has been in favor of research, but sure. I haven't asked specifically about how they would feel about being randomized and potentially being subjected to a placebo. <laughs> because how else would you study this? I mean, this is something where you right. really you would need some control, I would think. Yes, yeah. And you know what? The other challenge to conducting research in this arena is that there are lots of different formulations. Mm. Um, so back in the 70s, some folks at Dana-Farber actually conducted very rigorous research um, uh, using a purified THC, naturally occurring THC product that, that was actually supplied by the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Mm. And the specific question they were seeking to answer um, was whether uh, this purified THC could be helpful as an anti-nausea medication for cancer patients, mostly adults. And they did find that it was better than um, sort of Nothing, <laughs> right. and better than some of the sort of antiquated anti-nausea yeah, they medications. Very good then, yeah, yeah um, you know that study hasn't been replicated in recent eras when we have other anti-nausea agents, which are probably uh, better, which may be better. Yeah, um, but I, I think in general people are in favor of research. I think research could be very complicated with the federal regulations being what they are. That also complicates things. I actually feel like there are countries around the world, you know, Canada, for example, or Israel, where Laws around marijuana are much more permissive, um, where rigorous randomized controlled trials could actually potentially more feasibly be conducted to help provide the scientific basis for our, our practice. Dr. Prasanna Ananth is an assistant professor of pediatric hematology and oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.